Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about emerging technology in offshore renewables and how we will meet our future energy needs. My name is Catherine York and I'm the manager of the Operations and Maintenance Centre of Excellence at the ORE Catapult, the UK's leading research and innovation centre for offshore renewables. We connect agile technology developers, academics and industry players working to accelerate the UK's wind, wave and tidal energy sectors. Offshore renewables projects are relentless producers of data. While the sector's turbines are generating clean electricity, a complex network of sensors and systems are generating and logging information about the condition and performance of everything involved, from the turbine's blades and drivetrain down to its bolts, and even the heart rate of the technicians sent to make repairs. In this episode, we explore the digital world of offshore wind with three industry experts. Without further ado, let's get started. Hi guys, my name's Ty. I'm Managing Director for Cognitive Business. We operate in machine learning, cloud AI, and digital for industry specifically offshore wind. I'm Mike Beasley. I work for a company called Zellim Limited, also probably known as Offshore Survival Systems. And we are working in the automation of search and rescue in offshore. I'm the project manager. Hi everyone, I'm Fran McNulty. I'm the Sustainability Lead at Ray. We specialise in virtual reality training for high hazard environments. And within my role as Sustainability Lead, I drive our engagement with the offshore wind industry because we see data-driven VR and XR as an enabler of the, the zero emissions transition. So to kick off our conversation today, let's get back to basic. We're going to challenge our guests to explain a data or digital term for the audience in less than 60 seconds. So starting with Ty, could you explain for us data readiness level? Yes, yeah, certainly, Catherine. With regards to different companies that operate within offshore wind uh, or wind in general, maybe even to further industrial data, each level that can be operated at is kind of different. You see a lot of industry still operates with almost pen and paper and notes that they pass around with very little integration within their digital systems. We would class those as a very low level of digital data readiness compared to some of the more advanced companies who have integrated machine learning and AI approaches to daily tasks uh, and forecasting as well as general optimization across their asset portfolio. Thanks, Ty. Mike, could you explain for us artificial intelligence in 60 seconds? <laughs> I guess really it's a, it's a kind of euphemism, I suppose, for the intelligence that us humans have. It is really a way of, I think, of a parallel of machines and computing systems to try and behave and reason like humans would. However, of course, we all realise that it's not really quite got to that stage yet. A lot of it in, in terms of, I guess, what artificial is that it has to learn. Um, and it has to learn, I suppose, like we originally do, either by experience, which is unsupervised learning, or by seeing and mimicking things that we see in the real world. So that's supervised learning where you have to train somebody and you also have to go through many instances of things that you've seen before so that things that you see in the future can be estimated or selected uh, from that and a kind of inference 
I guess that's it. Thank you, Mike. And then Fran, if I see the term XR somewhere, what should I understand by that? So XR is extended reality, and it's kind of a blanket term that includes augmented reality, virtual reality, and mixed reality. So it's anything where you're combining real environments with human interaction uh, with computer technology to create a kind of immersive experience. So for example, in AR, you might have an app on a tablet that allows an engineer to see and manipulate parts of a machine as if it's in the room right in front of them. Or with VR, the user would wear a headset to be completely immersed in a virtual environment that replicates the real world, uh, where they can move and interact with objects within it in 3D. And then mixed reality is where you're kind of blurring the lines between both. You're combining real world objects with an immersive experience. So you could have, say, a crane simulation where the user is sitting in a, a replica crane cabin in a training center. And in VR, they're in a crane, but actually out uh, at a wind farm. And then when they move the physical controls of the, the physical crane, that action is being replicated in VR. So then we've all mentioned in these descriptions the importance of data. And maybe if I go to Ty now with what types of data are collected from offshore wind projects and why is it important to analyse them? So speaking specifically around operations and maintenance, which is our key area of expertise, I guess, Catherine, but there's several layers and of data that can be gathered. So there's operational data, including data from control systems. There's additional data that comes in the form of maybe vibration or reports, analysis, other sorts of online systems that can provide very, very useful insights into the ongoing operations and maintenance of the, of the sites. One of the, the key aspects of operating a site is, is forecasts around weather, uh, met ocean data. The other side, maybe the darker side of, of data, is what's collected by technicians and operations teams in forms of visual inspection information, work orders, even down to the kind of financial understanding that was developed by the, the exec teams. All these things kind of fit together to form a very clear picture, if they can be collected together, of how a wind farm is, is operating and how it could be operating. The integration of subsequent technologies such as machine learning, and, and as long as it's tailored to true engineering requirements, can then unlock further value from those data sources. But quite often, you have to be able to combine those data sources in a meaningful way to get that value. And that is the challenge that's faced by several, if not all, of the offshore and onshore wind operators. That's really interesting that you mentioned the, the dark side of data collection, because I think quite often people's minds jump to the vast array of sensors and the output from the turbines themselves about their performance. But there is this whole body and wealth of other information that might be hidden in spreadsheets or on pieces of paper. So what would you say about how mature the industry is at the moment in its data management? On our internal scale of data readiness, we tend to go from one to four. We feel that most companies, having done reviews of operational data maturity, sit between one and two. Very few companies are taking that elevated step for full integration, uh, although a lot are working towards it, uh, where they get to use more of their data information and knowledge together to make more in informed decisions in both a planning and operational concepts. So 
that was a little bit really around um, how industry might use its data and how it could progress towards use of artificial intelligence more for business modeling and for supporting decisions and optimizing how they're working. One other way that artificial intelligence can be used is within some of the semi-autonomous or autonomous systems that are in development. So, Mike, could you explain how you see AI being used to support semi-autonomous systems? Certainly. First of all, I'll mention it in the context of what we're doing. We're looking at search and rescue, which is obviously a very highly regulated environment. So it doesn't lead instantly to terms like autonomy. There's always a, a human in the loop and uh, it's a slow moving industry in that term. So what we're doing is using data to detect possible casualties uh, in the sea. And it's a very difficult thing to do. So that means operating at 24 seven. So we've got visible scenes, dawn, dusk. Uh, we have to also consider operating at nighttime. So our input has to be visual and thermal. To that extent, then we have to train on possible casualties who, who could probably be sometimes no bigger than a football in the water. And so artificial intelligence to us now means analyzing that with additional effects of, of the weather, sea spray, all these sort of things, even probably large well, mammals like dolphins and so forth charted objects and stuff, all this has to be extracted from the scene. And so we can uh, learn specifically what or how to find a casualty. And they may be in uh, full PPE gear. They may be uh, just uh, fallen off something and, and unprotected, or they might be in industrial harnesses. And all these instances need separate analysis from an AI point of view. So we probably have to run separate models for each of these um, instances and then merge them all together to see how ultimately we could end up directing a rescue vessel to these people. First of all, it would be a man in the loop with remote control, but ultimately we would aim towards a full automation where we can retrieve persons from the water with, with no intervention. And that requires an awful lot of fusing of different sensors and understanding how they work, not just to spot, detect and track the casualty, but also to manoeuvre any vessel. Thank you. So we're talking, I think, in both of these examples about a way of supporting human activity by integrating sources of data that humans don't have the sensors to detect or synthesising it all in a way that it can be interpreted by a person or deducing patterns perhaps that are out there, but there's just too much information for a human to absorb. So that's really interesting to see how both of those will be used. Fran, how do you see immersive technologies making use of operational data? I suppose there are uh, almost endless ways, but some of the most obvious ones are around digital twins, which I think Ty obviously mentioned already, and where that connects with say VR, which is, is kind of the area we specialize in, you know, there are many ways that you can then visualize those digital twins. So if you can actually have somebody within a VR headset interacting with a computer generated version of a real environment that is behaving realistically using real time data, you know, it's a, a fantastic way for visualizing information, for running tests, for explaining processes. 
and also for, for checking systems. But I suppose what we're particularly interested in and the data that, that we collect and analyze is in the area of training. If you're using VR, for example, you know, you can capture data about every movement or decision a user makes. There are headsets that will even capture exactly where they're looking at any given moment um, when they're being put through realistic scenarios. And you get a whole new understanding uh, when you analyze it of what a workforce's skill sets are and where there is knowledge, maybe where there are gaps in knowledge. I guess it's important to analyze it because data by itself is not going to tell you much. And, you know, knowing what questions to ask can be the challenge. But some of the ways that we use the data we gather is around, you know, comparing novices and experts. So you can identify um, quite objectively what makes somebody good. And it's not a way of pointing out, you know, performance issues. It's more a way to kind of streamline training or target training to particular individuals' needs, which can help you deploy people faster. You can also maybe identify trends in safety. If you put people through the same scenario and realize, you know, 45% of people don't notice this particular fire hazard, you know, when they go through this, that's going to tell you something really important about how ready those people are to be in that environment for real. Even down to design, you might find people using controls realistically in VR tells you actually the position of that control or the shape of that tool is making this an unnecessarily slow or cumbersome job. And then you can actually iteratively improve on the design of that. How about then some examples we could share with listeners of data and digital successes that have been seen within the wind industry? We've talked about our relative level of immaturity, but there are lots of things going on. Ty, have you come across examples of things that are actually happening within the industry that could be delivering cost reductions or increasing power output? Yes, Catherine. So I guess from Cognitive's perspective, we can be very specific. We are working with two of the larger offshore wind utilities, RWE and SSE. Both have got a very high level of maturity and appetite for innovation. So we've worked with RWE over the last year or so on a, a new technique which is applicable to offshore wind turbine accessibility through crew transfer. So at the moment, it's a bit of a dark art when or when you can't transfer crew members from a crew transfer vessel or other. It's believed that the industry on the whole uses certain metrics, so the significant waypipe being the, the key metric that people use to, to make that decision. However, through our analysis uh, together with RWE and the guys on the ground, as it were, it's turned out that around 20% of the time, significant waypipes, the key metric is not a valid metric for making that decision, which leads people to guess, interpolate, extrapolate from their own experience and understanding on at least 20% of decisions that they're having to make. Working with those crew and the marine coordinators, Cognitive has actually developed a technique which goes way beyond significant waypoint, uses several other ocean variables and weather conditions to make a, a much more informed decision automatically. So we can support the decision for whether or not crew should be transferred with a very accurate day ahead forecast and a slightly less accurate six day ahead forecast, which enables planners to, to make much more informed decisions and to enable marine coordinators to, to make safer decisions without the risk, the pressure of being questioned as to why they didn't try to transfer under certain conditions. In relation to safe transfers offshore, 
one of the things that I've been aware of is that it's not just the conditions within the field in terms of what the significant wave height is, but it can be the conditions across the entire route. So how technicians are feeling by the time they get to the turbines can be the influencing factor of whether they feel that they're happy to or it's safe to transfer. But there's also been a bit of an underlying feeling that people, whether that's the technicians or the skippers, know whether they'll have a successful transfer before they leave because somehow they are integrating information beyond just that uh, significant wave height. Do you feel that the studies you've done have borne out that human gut feeling about they will or they won't? Or are you actually managing to find out um, causes that they hadn't understood? It's almost like you've read some of the literature that I've put out there, Catherine. The benefit of using machine learning in this environment is that those insights and gut feel are actually mappable. So if you have the right information, you can start to use what these guys tell you to, to create models that in essence replicate their gut feel. That has been absolutely critical to initially coming up with the idea around improving trace transfer uh, accessibility safety to actually develop the idea further and then finally deliver something that in essence was mapping that gut feel approach to improve the safety of transport. So yeah, absolutely. As humans, our natural intelligence is very, very high and guys who are in the field are absolutely experts in what they're doing because they do it every single day. And that gut feel is something um, only when you have enough data and the right source of data and, and understand exactly what it is that they're interpreting themselves. But once you have that combined together, you can start making decisions or supporting decisions from a, an expert standpoint using uh, machine learning to map those processes and perhaps. In terms of mapping what users actually do or people in the workplace do. That sounds like something that Fran was alluding to with the XR experience. Fran, is there something you'd like to come in with about how we can learn about how work is done and what can speed up, what makes differences in uh, task completion between people? Is that something you've observed in the VR space? Absolutely. I think it ties into to what I said before around once you have large enough data sets for a body of workers who are all being put through the same or similar scenarios in VR, you start to see those, those trends that maybe wouldn't have been discernible to somebody who's just observing or subjectively analyzing their performance. That's where you really start to identify, I suppose, ways that you can really streamline processes, what to make them more time efficient, to make them more operationally efficient. I think the key with that is how the data is presented back to the people who can then make decisions on it. Data analysis is, it's complex. <laughs> it's extremely complex. It's how that data is stored, how it's presented, how it's analyzed is, is, is one part of the puzzle. But then in order to actually make it something people can do something with, you have to be providing it to people who aren't data experts in a way that they can clearly see, well, here's a learning, here's an insight, here's a problem, and now I can take steps to address it. So there are obviously many different ways you can do that. The way we use this a dashboard, you know, that just in working with particular clients, we identify in advance, you know, what are key insights that are going to be of the greatest benefit to you? Not the things that you can already figure out on your own, the things that really you don't have the time or resources or capacity to figure out because of the quantity of data. 
And then you just present those back as very simple metrics. And um, as Ty said, though, you know, those metrics, it's critical they're the right metrics because you don't want to be basing your decision making on the wrong thing. The data might be right, but it might not be telling you the full picture. So that's why I think for us, the way we work around that is doing kind of a detailed workshopping process with clients before we get into that phase where we're really trying to understand not just what they think they need, but how their operations actually work and where the data is going to provide value before you you go too far into just pulling insights for the sake of it. You know, they have to be the right insights. Fran just mentioned something about interpreting information and the difficulty of handling information. Mike, do you have any thoughts about how job roles within the sector will change or how the skills that people will need as we adopt more data and digital solutions, how that's going to change? Yeah, I think as the systems get more and more complex and integrated, there has to be probably a lot more system engineering, comms engineering and software engineering brought into this rather than from something which is probably more traditionally old uh, industrial type engineering, mechanical engineering. Also with tasks such as being a helmsman or a skipper, if you're working in a remote operations center, uh, then suddenly you've had some of the natural feel that you have in the environment is taken away from you. I did have a look at one of the uh, new operations centers being built. And it did occur to me that having a long, long time ago worked on a BP 40s field, there's a whole different environment of being in a remote operations centre than there is in the field. So I guess that it's this more information technology engineering and integration that is required. Another example is tightly coupled around that. When we look at trying to detect and track people in the water, you can be fixated on, on tracking these people at, at some distance, but ultimately you have to navigate the vessel to them in order to retrieve them. And this is where we have already thought that it must be a very good idea to at least have augmented reality uh, added to that capability to the helm or the skipper uh, in the remote operations centre. Because whilst you're looking far ahead, you've also got objects that can suddenly appear near the vessel, very near the vessel, or in the case of you're picking up multiple casualties, you, you've suddenly got to have awareness of the afar where you're trying to direct a vessel, but also there can be things around you. And this is where we would integrate augmented reality to assist that. I guess it's not getting rid of any existing jobs. It's adding a broader spectrum of requirements and roles, I think, to keep this all operating at a, at a wider... Um, there are more different schemes to come into play here. There's an increased scope of role. Thinking about... Uh increased scope of different roles and changing of the skills and overall what's on all of our minds at the moment is driving towards a zero emission economy. Ty, can you see ways in which the industry can actually lead by example by growing an economy but creating jobs? What do you see those jobs as being? I think it's a really interesting question actually Catherine that the new jobs and the new market moves out there. I think there's a lot of people who want to become data scientists, computer scientists over and above the classic kind of engineering roles within offshore wind. However, I think that the truth of the matter is that we need all of those roles. We need expert engineers. We need guys who truly understand how assets operate and then taking them apart and put them back together again. 
working hand in hand with guys who have got more experience maybe in data and data science and development coding we've often found that separation in skill set and the idea that maybe there's a transition to a more digital skill set is quite often a bad move for a lot of companies and a lot of teams um, because the subject matter expertise that you require to, to truly get the insights uh, that you're in essence trying to map or understand uh, could easily be lost. So I feel that the expertise within engineering, the techs that are going out and doing the work, these are all absolutely critical and crucial roles for, for the industry. Fran, how do you see data and digital solutions changing the landscape of the offshore renewable energy sector? Do you think we're going to see big changes from where we are now? I think we will. The area that we're most focused on and where I think there will be huge strides made in the very near future is around training, job creation and, and just kind of meeting the demand of the huge workforce that's going to be needed to fuel this zero emission transition. So I think the most recent GWO, GWEC report for wind as a whole, you know, said we're going to need 500,000 jobs to install and maintain the wind projects that are planned just for the next five years. So, you know, that's a staggering number that we need to meet. And this is where, you know, data and digital can really come to the fore in helping make that process faster. One of the projects we're working on at the moment with funding from the Offshore Wind Growth Partnership is a VR training solution for fire awareness. So it's been designed to, to fit within the GWO standards so the trainers providing that certification can use it to enhance the outcomes. You know, people can train more safely and realistically. They can train in context in an cell. And then obviously data can be captured about all of the decisions and actions they're taking within that. Again, we don't see VR as something that's going to replace the role of the very skilled existing trainers. It's just another tool that's going to enhance this and will make it faster to, to train people to necessary levels. It'll help speed transition of skilled workers from, say, oil and gas into the wind industry and taking advantage of skills they already have, or even just school leavers, if people can actually get an opportunity to experience what it's going to be like out there at sea, you know, before they, they commit to training, you know, you can maybe reduce drop-off rates or actually encourage more people who might not have thought they'd be into it uh, to get into the industry. And I think predictive analytics is also a key place when it comes to reducing emissions. You can actually identify across your supply chain and your production process, you know, where those emissions are high, you can then start to look at reducing them, you know, predictive maintenance, if you can reduce the number of routine maintenance trips that don't result in any significant actions, you're reducing emissions associated with those trips. And it's a simple example, but I think we'll just see more and more of those as time goes on. And that's something that uh, ORE Catapult is trying to draw industry together around seeing those opportunities within XR and linking up people from the development side with the people who are actually providing the training and those who are receiving the training to see how we can take advantage of some of these systems. And it will be really interesting to see how things like that develop as time goes on. Mike, I believe you're working at the moment, or Zelim is working with ORE Catapult on the development of some of your projects. Is that something you can talk a little bit about uh, how we're working together? Certainly. ORE Catapult are very tightly integrated into our development team. 
insofar as we've had some AI and ML experts, notably um, Phil and Ampea that work at ORE. And uh, they are looking at pre-processing some of our data and making the input data more robust and extracting more information prior to us applying um, some of the machine learning to it. It's invaluable, the assistance that we've had here. These kind of integrations, I find, are, uh, are more than useful. ORE, of course, are also right at the other end of the project, will be facilitating and managing field testing. In that instance, we need to hire a vessel. This is to test our search and rescue object detector and tracker. In a larger scheme, we uh, will have our own vessel, which can be deployable off launch and rescue systems attached to turbines or daughter vessels on motherships. But in this instance, in the near term, starting at the beginning of next year, this is where we are testing the object detection and tracking on a vessel out in the Firth of Forth, and this is under ORE's management. Time for some closing thoughts from everybody. It's been really interesting to hear what you've had to say. How do you think the industry will be different in, say, about 10 years' time? We've got massive growth plans, massive need for growth. How will data and digital help us achieve that? Um, maybe to Mike, first of all. Firstly, I think systems will get more and more integrated, more and more autonomous. I think in 10 years' time, the regulations will probably have begun to pick up with having some sort of fully autonomous vessels to support search and rescue and maybe maybe not crew transfer, but it could be, but certainly I think the delivery of logistics and so forth. So that then brings in much greater challenges in terms of navigation in the area. would reckon that we will move from a man in the loop. There will be man oversight, obviously for safety reasons, but man in the loop for the uh, helming of the vessels will probably give over to more full autonomy. And then that adds to the challenges then of not just detecting obstacles, but you have to perform the navigation itself. So you're looking at trying to avoid charted objects, other vessels and so forth. So the whole idea of then predicted guidance in the field will be one of the next phases. And it's a lot more difficult than it is on land because you don't have so many reference points to look to so it's not quite the same as it would be for autonomy in road vehicles for instance also i think in a much much wider scope i think as we've seen recently in the last couple of weeks the integration of switching on the power cable connection to norway there's a whole huge integrated system there where norway's been used as a battery UK and Norway can probably uh, fulfill energy generation, but of course wind is used as energy on demand. So I think that opens up a whole new wider closed loop development on a huge scale. And I just think that going forward there'll be much more development and more intelligence will be handed over to autonomy. Could include things for instance like air vehicles, integrate air vehicles in with the vessels you get much, much more visibility of the scene. Fran, your thoughts? So I think we're going to see far greater adoption of XR data and digital technologies throughout the entire life cycle of wind, you know, from 
construction through to decommissioning um, and you know particularly as floating platforms come up become available and we are talking about much more hazardous conditions you know that's going to become more and more important for reducing costs improving safety i also think it's going to lead to a lot more jobs that we maybe don't even fully realize yet because we can't necessarily picture them you know when i was a school leaver 17 or 18 years ago my job didn't exist and <laughs> um, so i think that that's only going to continue and there are going to be jobs in 10 years driven by data and digitalization that we're only just now getting glimpses of. And I think that's a really exciting space to be in. I think that's important for people to realize when you know they occasionally get concerned about the idea of autonomous operations or semi-autonomous reducing jobs, but I don't really think that's the case. And certainly we've seen with training that that's not the case. We see these as tools to enhance existing jobs, to bring people along with the transition and then to actually create new jobs. And I suppose in the training space and data generally, what I'd like to see, I don't know if it is where we'll be in 10 years, but is maybe more collaboration and sharing of data. There's always going to be data that's proprietary and, you know, specific to your operations. But I think particularly when it comes to things like health and safety, that's in everyone's interest. And there really can be, the industry can champion the sharing of, of data for those purposes to improve collective safety. Data insights improve with the volume and quality of the data you have. So if we could develop maybe more collaborative ways of, of sharing similar information, I really do think that it would help improve and drive those processes forward. Um, it would also lead to maybe easier methods of creating standards. You know, the more that digitalized tools are being used, the more VR or XR is being used in training, and the more there is a need to make sure that it's being used correctly. You know, we all saw with COVID, a lot of companies bringing out standards for e-learning maybe that didn't exist before. So I think that's where we're going to have to get to with uh, data, digital and XR technologies as well. And Ty, any last thoughts from you about the future of data and digital in the offshore wind industry? I think that there's obviously some tactical decisions that a lot of companies are going to have to make right now, which are whether or not they maintain isolated silos of data, how they structure their teams, their hiring, their learning and development. All these things will absolutely influence the future of how everybody operates. But really, when it comes down to it, the driving factors of the industry, I think, will take hold. We're looking at deploying tens of gigawatts, more than we currently have over the next decades in the UK. We have to deliver on that promise, that concept. We have to drive down costs, uh, we have to perform more safely and be more performant to make those businesses work as well as be sustainable. These factors, I personally think, are, are going to be the kind of driving forces which force companies to operate in a more effective, efficient, collaborative way, whatever it may be, to, to actually just achieve those goals, which are very, very, very ambitious, certainly in the UK. Our leadership is kind of shining through to the, the rest of the world who are also pushing forward in this area. And as we develop the expertise and skills, capability, I think the world, world is absolutely going to follow. Um, and that's how I see the development over the next decade, if, if not further. Ty, Mike and Fran, thank you for taking part in today's episode. It's now time to de-energise until next month. In the meantime, listeners can find out more about ORE Catapult activities at ore.catapult.org.uk. 
And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at ORECatapult. <laughs>